welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have David Barnett. He's a private transaction advisor, and I brought him on the show specifically to talk about acquisitions, but not from the seller's point of view, which we covered multiple times, but from the buyer's point of view. And with that, here's my interview with David. David, thanks for taking the time today. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So David, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Sure. So I work with people who are looking at doing the purchase or sale of small businesses And I'm a former business broker, but I do not act as a business broker today. I simply work in an advisory or consulting role for either one of the parties. And the vast majority of my work is with buyers. So we've covered on this podcast several times now, the dynamics of selling a business, you know, how you want to get to maximum enterprise value, how you basically standardize process, try and make yourself a little bit irrelevant to the business so that it's more Mm -hmm. of something you can sell off and the types of buyers. But, you know, when you reached out to me, I thought... It's funny. I've only ever looked at it from the one angle on this podcast. You know, the second one is is actually just the other angle absolutely needs coverage. So let's talk about what it is to basically be a purchaser in a transaction. So first off, let's talk about where these opportunities come from. Um, you know, where do typically business owners end up getting the opportunity to buy another business? Sure. So buyers fall into a couple of different categories. And the vast majority of the work that I do is what we call in what we call the main street space, which is businesses with cash flows of under half a million. So if you think of EBITDA of half a million and lower, typically where I'm working, I straddle that line a little bit and get into some of the bigger ones. But so we have business owners who realize it might be faster and easier to grow through acquisition. So that's one pool of buyers. Another pool of buyers are People who work someplace and don't like it. And typically, uh, these people are sort of in the middle-aged group where they've got mortgages and families and maybe children. And and they realize that if they want to pursue their entrepreneurial dream, the risks of a startup may just be too great. But if they buy a business, they can become an entrepreneur without the risk of starting up because they're going to get the sales and the revenue and everything right from the moment that they buy the business. And then the third group, would be the people who need an income and for whatever reason, face barriers to employment. And these would be a lot of professional people moving to the country for the first time. Maybe their professional designations aren't recognized here and they need to earn some money. And one of the few opportunities that really offers, you know, the wide field of opportunity is business ownership and entrepreneurship. And so those are the three big groups of buyers that I meet. Interesting. And all very different motivations, right? I mean, it seems like it's, uh, I've always looked at it through my lens, <laughs> but definitely a lot there to unpack given, given different people come for different things. Do you find those motivations impact everything from what they're looking at to pricing? Like how does that have a play into the entire purchase decision? Yeah, sure. So for a lot of these businesses, especially the the smaller ones, most of these businesses are owner-managed companies. And you mentioned before about maximizing the value of a business. You want to make yourself irrelevant, pull yourself out of the process. And as a business gets bigger, that becomes possible because you've got the cash flow to start bringing in layers of management, middle management, leaders, et cetera. For the smaller businesses, a lot of these sellers are still in that day-to-day management role. And it's not necessarily to their detriment because a lot of the buyers, while they're looking to invest by buying a business, they are also looking to acquire a job. 
So they know that when they make the acquisition that they're going to step into that role and become the person that runs it day to day. So the strategic acquirer, the person who's trying to grow through acquisition, that would be the exception to this. They're looking at growing their existing business by buying another one. But for a lot of these smaller businesses, the buyer is going to be looking at the type of business that they want to acquire, and they're going to be examining things like their own skill set and the things that they know and their experience in the past. And they're going to try to leverage that into some sort of advantage in deciding what kind of business that they're going to go and look for. If you just think about someone who has some sort of experience in engineering or construction or building, and they're going to go out and try to find a business related to those fields. Now, that does impact the economics of it, right? I mean, discuss this, and we're kind of off the topic I thought we'd be starting on, but nevertheless, it's important. We discussed this previously when it comes to types of buyers, right? The economics of buying a job are different than the economics of, hey, I've got an enterprise already in place. I'm buying your client list, right? You know, what we refer to as a strategic buyer, you know, someone's already got the infrastructure and frankly, they don't need everything else, right? They could, they could basically just buy your client, buy the business, throw that on the top of their, of their uh, income statement. And, and most of it flows to the bottom. Uh, talk to me how that impacts. Do you think that there's a, there's a, there's an issue regarding pricing in between those two groups, or is that something you're seeing a lot of Are people overpaying? You know, I'm wondering how that impacts everything. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of mentality. And in the you know, in the world of acquiring businesses, we often hear about EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization. We hear about EBITDA multiples. And in the mid-market space, people toss around ideas of what businesses are worth, various multiples, four or five, six times, or what have you. In the world of Main Street businesses, we use a different level of cash flow. It's called SDE, Seller's Discretionary Earnings. Mm-hmm. And it is the total amount of cash flow available to an owner an owner. Um, manager who works full-time in the business. And so out of that SDE money, it's not the money that goes in the person's pocket. This is the money they control. And so out of that SDE cash flow, that owner manager has to take home money to support their family. They have to pay the taxes in the business. They have to take care of any CapEx. So because depreciation and amortization have been added back, so they got to take care of any kind of equipment renewal and that kind of stuff out of the SDE. They also need to take care of debt service and they need to get some kind of rate of return on the cash that they put in to make the acquisition. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of different things that come out of that SDE number. And as a result, the multipliers that we see, multiples of SDE are much lower numbers than in that conversation about EBITDA. So when people are talking about, you know, businesses selling for three and a half, four times EBITDA, in the world of Main Street businesses, we're talking about businesses selling for like 1.7 to 2.2 times that SDE figure. And it's literally a rate of return on a combination of the money you're putting in and your full-time effort as the person who's going to work there every day. And so a lot of the times when we're looking at the smallest businesses, which don't produce that much more of a cash flow beyond what someone could earn in a in a paid job, then yeah, a lot of people point their finger at that and they say, why would you pay money to have that job? I actually had a, a banker at one of the big banks say to me one day, you know, why would this client of yours be willing to pay to basically acquire a job? And I picked up his business card and I said, well, how much did you pay for this MBA? And didn't you <laughs> do make that investment in order to be able to get a better job? And so it's it's actually the same kind of thing. You know, somebody is paying money in order to secure that cash flow so that they have a personal income. And their aspirations for what they're going to do with that business is 
is going to be part of that. You know, the reason why people buy a business isn't entirely about money. I deal with a lot of C-suite people who have crazy working hours and they have a lot of stress and they have a lot of day-to-day issues in their employment. And their reason for going out and looking at a business to buy is because they want to make an entire lifestyle change. They want to do something completely different. Okay. So yeah, definitely a consideration. It's funny, we have a similar metric in the advisor space known as EBOC, earnings before owner's compensation. It's uh, more widely known in the US than Canada, but nevertheless, it's uh, basically the same corollary. Okay. So we've identified a business that basically is looking to be bought or could be bought. Now, what's the next step? Well, what is the first step once you've identified them? So there's a couple of different ways that people find a business that they might want to buy. So there's the world of business brokerage. So sometimes business owners will go to a business broker and say, I want to sell my business. And those are the people that will help them sell their business. And some of those brokers are going to have a network of buyers already. So business buyers will go and meet brokers to be put on their lists in hopes of getting things offered to them that might match. Or it could be like a broadcast email might say, you know, we just listed family entertainment center, or we just listed a banquet hall or something like that. So that's one avenue. The best estimates though, are that only about one in five businesses trade hands through an intermediary in the main street space. So the majority of businesses are not changing hands in that way. What tends to happen is that a seller will become motivated to want to sell their business because of some kind of personal situation in their life. The top ones are burnout, boredom, and fatigue, divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, the last one being retirement. And so something will happen and the owner realizes, I can't carry on running this business anymore. It's time for me to move on. And they'll then be open to this idea of potentially selling the business. Think about someone who's part of a a certain industry, and maybe that industry has a trade association or there's a big trade show that happens. Oftentimes a business owner will know other business owners in a similar, in the same industry in other areas. And so this is where the car dealer says, hey, you know what? I know the guy who has the same brand car dealership 100 kilometers away. Maybe that person would be interested in buying my business because they already know the industry. It would be good strategic acquisition. So you get a lot of this, like particularly in franchises where someone will offer their franchise for sale to another franchisee in the same network in a different place. And so these deals are made through these personal networks where people try to find that, find that buyer. From the flip side, if somebody knows that they want to buy a business and they've identified a specific industry, some of those people will actually engage in a in a search where they will go out and actively try to network with the owners of these businesses to try to identify someone who is open to selling. I work with people who are doing this. And it's not uncommon for people to undertake different campaigns, like sending out letters or LinkedIn campaigns or reaching out through phone calls or emails. And sometimes you talk with people who are not interested in selling, but now that the connection's been made, sometimes then you can leverage that connection and meet somebody else. So the business owner meets someone who says, hey, do you want to buy my business? No, but I met this guy who called me and connections are made in this way. I've also had clients who have mailed out letters and more than two years later, people have picked up the phone and reached back out to them. You know, they've, they've hung on to that because the, the difficulty in the marketplace, Jason, is that everyone can see the businesses. All the people in the public know that a business is there, but business owners cannot identify people who might want to buy them who are out in the public. And so those people who are interested in buying a given type of business if they go and reach out to those business owners, they can identify themselves and make themselves visible. It's a very labor-intensive process. I liken it to a sales methodology. 
You know, if you were representing a certain kind of piece of equipment, you'd have to identify who might want to buy this, go out there, create relationships. And for some people, it can take years to to find that opportunity. I, I mean, I think also the, uh, you know, there's the human kind of hit upon it, the networking aspect of this all, especially if you're in a certain industry, most people know their competitors. I mean, depending on this their concentration within it. So there's always opportunities there. Now, do you find, you know, when people are ready to sell and buyers are ready to buy, do you find uh, there's always this reticence to let people know that you're you're looking to leave, right? How much does that create a conflict or an issue when trying to market a business? Well, it's got the entire process has to be kept secret. And this is what makes it a little bit unique. You know, you're trying to sell a house, you put a sign on the lawn. When you're trying to sell a business, you can't tell anyone because all of your different stakeholder groups could react negatively if they find out a business is up for sale. The the average person who has a job, they only hear about businesses being put up for sale when it hits the evening news and they hear that the mill is looking for a new owner. And that only means one thing, the mill's in trouble. And so if employees find out a business is for sale, they could panic. If customers find out a business is for sale, they might be worried that the warranty or the you know service guarantee isn't going to be very good. If bankers hear that your business is up for sale, they might decide to draw a, like call or limit your credit access. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that can happen, and so these things have to be done in secret, and that's makes it difficult. It also makes it very interesting. This is probably one of the least efficient and most opaque markets that there is. A lot of the times business owners will not want their direct competitors to know anything about their business. If, if, if there are two companies in the same industry in the same town competing with each other and one finds out the other's for sale, they would actually have a market advantage in letting that information leak. And so it's very unlikely actually that two direct competitors will talk to each other about a potential acquisition. But the guys in the next province over, that's a different kind of thing. They're not directly competitive, but they understand the industry. And the other interesting dynamic that happens is when you have two direct competitors, one of them is actually not going to value the other one as much because they feel like if those guys just close, we'll get all the business anyway. Yeah. So it's it's hard for them to rationalize why they would pay a sum of money to acquire those customers when in a certain way, they feel kind of entitled to those customers anyway. Like if those guys just went away, but to the business that's far away that wants to grow geographically, it's a whole different angle to look at for them. It's a way to plant a flag in a whole new market and then to gain other advantages. You know, if you double the size of your business by buying an equally sized company in another city and you double your volume of purchasing, you might not increase sales. You might not increase margins, but you might be able to increase your, uh, your leverage with suppliers. You might be able to earn more money simply because you pay less for some of the inputs. All valid reasons for why you would do that. Uh, and I've seen them firsthand. Uh, the entire feeling entitled thing is kind of interesting. You know, I think, sure, if there's two, if there's two guys in a town, uh, then you got an issue. If there's seven in that, in that geographic mm. area, then I think it changes dynamics a little bit, right? Because yeah, it can. Yeah. You know, comes down to another reason why we don't need oligopolies. Okay. So identified buyer, what's the first step in the process? Um, once the buyer's identified, how do these two start talking about getting married? It depends on whether or not the seller is actually prepared. Mm-hmm. So if there's a broker involved or if the seller has done some work to actually prepare themselves, then they'll have some kind of package of information they can share with the buyer. And it may be redacted. It may be limited information, but it should at least show some some key highlights about the business, about what their cash flow is, revenue, that kind of thing. From that information, a 
buyer can then make a conditional offer. And the conditional offer is conditional upon an actual diligence process of investigating all the information and making sure that everything is the way it's been represented. And this is key because you don't want to get deep into due diligence before you put any kind of offer on the table, because sometimes you can never come to terms. And so buyers want to avoid that kind of heavy investment until they know that they're actually in the same ballpark with respect to an agreement on valuation and terms. So if the seller is not prepared at all, then it can be a little bit difficult because oftentimes buyers are left asking for certain basic pieces of information and they often have to wait. And when they get that stuff, it can be easy to start getting into a cycle of continuously asking more questions. But once you've got the basic information, you make that conditional offer and then the seller will respond. And if you can't agree on what kind of valuation or terms are reasonable at that point, then, you know, the buyer needs to walk away. But if you can agree, that's what opens the door to a more in-depth diligence process where the buyer is going to start investigating everything that's been represented. Yeah. The entire not ready to sell. It's interesting. There's the mentally, and then there's actually the organizationally ready to sell. Mm. And I've had this conversation on council, you know, on both sides where it's just like, well, why do they need all this? It's like, why do they need all this? They're looking to buy you. Are you kidding? And I know it's annoying that it's administrative. And, you know, a lot of times people think they can just turn it over to their accounts and the accounts are, can only provide the financials. They can't turn around and explain everything these people are asking for in terms of operations, everything else. So yeah, it's a, it's a due diligence process that can be onerous, but it's one that needs to happen. Otherwise, you know, I would say two things. A, I'm sure many sellers want basically want to be caveat emptor and just buy it and you take all the risk, but no buyer wants to subscribe to that unless the price has been hammered to the ground. So it's it's a challenging one. And then from the buyer's standpoint, I mean, it's always, I would say too, and then I'm sure from your perspective, if they can't get you basic information in a reasonable amount of time, isn't that a huge red flag as to the operational efficiency of the company? Well, all kinds of ideas can start to creep into a, a buyer's head if you can't get them information in a timely fashion, such as, oh, do they need the time to create it? Are they making it up? Yeah. Like, you know, why is it taking so long? And and honestly, most of the time, it's simply that the seller is engaged in the day to day operation of the business, and that they're they're literally busy. I know that uh, when I was a business broker, and even with the sellers I work with today, I'll be asking for tons of this information in helping to evaluate and prepare the businesses for sale. And I get the same pushback from these business owners saying, you know, do you really need this? Do you really need this? And I'll say, listen, when the buyer arrives on the scene, they're going to be asking for all of this and more. And if you can't get it for me, and I'm more patient, and we, we are not under the gun right now, then just wait until this buyer arrives. A good intermediary is going to prepare the seller by making them produce all of this stuff up front so that it's all ready to go. And that preparation is key. Just like any sale, when there's momentum in the transaction, when the buyer is eager and they want to make a deal, it benefits the seller to be ready to feed that desire with all of the information that they're looking for so that you can move quickly. There, There's always going to be these questions and there's always going, and a properly prepared buyer knows that there are always going to be these unknowns within the diligence. I've seen many due diligence checklists that you can find online and I'll read through them and half the things I know that most small businesses don't even have. And so the buyer has to be ready to be able to deal with the unknowns. And a lot of the times those unknowns are managed through the structure of the deal. And so this is what makes things a little bit different on Main Street from some of the bigger companies that get sold. A lot of bigger companies, you've got more management capacity, you've got more formalized systems, you've got better depth of information, you have internal management systems, ERPs, all that kind of thing. And so you can actually do 
a very good due diligence process and be reasonably sure what it is you're buying. And a lot more of those deals are done on what I call cash terms. There's some kind of payment that occurs. In the world of small businesses, there's a lot of black holes in the diligence. And so what ends up happening is you end up far more frequently with terms of sale that have some amount on closing and some amount of money over time, some kind of seller note. And the seller note is almost always subject to offsets in the case of material misrepresentations. And so if it turns out that the seller was saying certain things about the business and it turns out after the fact to be untrue, the buyer has an opportunity to basically rewrite the deal after the fact because it turned out that the information provided didn't tell the whole story. And I've got some great examples of that. There was one case where it was a construction materials business and they used to go and talk with architecture firms about the material, the goal being to try to get their particular products specced into the design so that no matter which contractor built the project, they would end up making the sale. And the seller told a story about a certain architecture firm and the buyer believed them. And then later after the fact discovered that what he had been told was, was blatantly untrue. It was a lie. And it was important. That was an important firm and the relationship there had been tainted and the seller hadn't revealed anything about that. And it took the buyer years to be able to work his way into being able to get meetings with those guys. And so he felt that that was definitely a problem and he put the seller on notice and he made an adjustment to the seller note. And this is the kind of thing that buyers need in order to feel comfortable with this lack of information. Absolutely. So the due diligence process is done. They decide that they're going to, one's going to sell to the other. What are the big kind of negotiating points besides like the total price? You already mentioned mm-hmm. one of them, kind of structuring kind of an escrow amount or an earn out. What are the other big negotiating points that come out besides those two? So basically it comes down to the price and the timeline that the payment will be made over. You mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned earnout and escrow. I mentioned seller notes and all three of those are very different. And so this is where we start to get into, into splitting hairs because if we have an agreement on the price, that's one point. And now we have to agree on the terms. How will that price be paid? Something like an earnout, for example, that is when we can't agree on the price. So if the seller believes that the future is far brighter for the business than the buyer does, then they might both agree to make part of the ultimate price contingent upon future performance. That's where the earnout comes in. So we have some kind of function of earning of payment for the business based upon what happens after the buyer takes over. An escrow means that the buyer actually provided the money, some other intermediary like a lawyer is holding the money for a certain period of time against certain things. So an escrow is common on at closing time when we have certain accounts that need to be reconciled on the balance sheet and we just don't know what the final numbers are. Attorneys might hold back money for 30 or 60 days waiting for accountants to finish that reconciliation, then that is taken care of. One interesting one during the pandemic here, I was a party to an agreement for the sale of a restaurant and it happened. The transaction occurred after the original COVID lockdowns in 2020. And one of the conditions was that there was going to be a sum of money, I think it was about $20,000, was going to be held in escrow for 12 months by the attorneys. And if the government closed dining rooms again during that period, the money was going to go back to the buyer. If not, it went to the seller. And so this was 
addressing a fear that the buyer had. They said, what if the government closes the dining rooms again? I'll be I'll be in a, in a hot situation. I'll need my, to get my hands on extra money. And so the seller addressed that fear by agreeing to this escrow component and the government closed dining rooms again. And so the money went back to the buyer. So in effect, the buyer ended up paying a lower price for the business because of this completely outside external threat to the business. But that's an example of how we deal with these fears or unknowns through the deal structure. The other thing is is about the training and transition. What sort of involvement is the seller going to have after the transaction occurs? And there's sort of the formal training where the buyer arrives on the scene and the seller helps them learn the business and everything they need to know day to day. And then there's the more informal stuff, the kind of coaching and advice and tapping into the the wisdom of, of the person that used to be able to, used to be the person that ran the business. And this is another reason why I'm such a big fan of of seller financing to a material degree. Because if you are paying someone for the business and making payments over five or six years, for example, and some new thing occurs to you in year three that you've never seen before, that person, that seller has an interest in your success in order to collect the balance of payments. And so do you think they'll take a phone call where you ask them for some advice about this situation? Of course they will. And so this seller note helps to tie the seller's interest into the long-term success of the buyer. There's many situations that have occurred where businesses have been sold on a cash basis. And to your point earlier, what you said, caveat emptor, the seller gets the money, they take off, they don't want anything to do with the buyer again. And it can really be a tragic situation because the reason someone is buying the business, the reason someone is going to be willing to pay some amount of money towards the goodwill that's been built into the business is because they want to avoid the risk of a startup. They want access to the fact that this is an economic thing that has momentum in the marketplace, that there are customers that already know them and and people are familiar with the product and the employees are there and they know the job that they're doing, et cetera. Excellent. So, all right. So those issues, which are several, I mean, honestly, can't imagine negotiating this stuff during COVID and the difficulty with those escrow payments, huge, huge implications. All right. So basically due diligence is done. They basically, I'm not going to get into the legal side of this because I covered that in other episodes about how essentially we go to, you know, we start off with non-disclosures and letters of intent and then move on to actual full contracts. And then eventually that all closes. Okay. So, so deal is closed. The business has been purchased. What does that transition period look like? And you know, what that needs to be thought of during that transition period? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that the buyer is going to be looking at during due diligence is they're going to be examining what kind of processes and procedures and standard operating pr- procedures are in place. What are the tools that allow this owner to manage the business? And they can range from, you know, businesses that are highly organized think of something like a franchise, someone who read the E-Myth Revisited, right? And they implemented all this stuff into their business to someone who just runs a business by the seat of their pants. And so when a buyer looks at a business, they ask themselves two questions. What is the cash flow? And the cash flow will determine the price. The second question is, will that cash flow continue under my stewardship? Or do I believe it will continue under my stewardship? And if that answer is no, then likely the buyer is not going to do the deal. And so this is why creating all these systems and processes is important because let's take, for example, a roofing company. If you're running a roofing company and you're doing everything by the seat of your pants and you're managing your crews during the day and you're doing quotes at night and you're sending out invoices you know, after that in the evening and you don't have any kind of systems at all, the only person who will seriously look at buying your business is someone 
who has experience in the roofing trade, because they're the only ones that are going to feel that they can actually do what you do because they've got some idea of what it is. Whereas if you have tools that you built on Excel that allow you to quote a job and you have uh, methodology, you're using a project management tool like Asana that allows you to schedule your crews, creates your work schedules, and you tie in your suppliers so they know where to deliver the shingles and all that kind of stuff. Well, then you can take somebody who's got some kind of management experience in almost any company, and you can sit them down and show them how you do this stuff. And they'll see that they can learn how to do it too. And that you know the quoting tool is going to allow them to make the proper bid on the job and, and all that kind of stuff. And so what you do is you widen the pool of potential buyers by being able to demonstrate that they can see, by being able to demonstrate that they're going to be able to do it too. So that training and transition period is going to be teaching the person what all these tools are and how you use them and how you how you run the day-to-day. I'll tell you a great story. There was a guy, he was buying a restaurant and he had never owned a restaurant before. And at the one of the meetings between the buyer and the seller, the buyer asked the seller, he said, you know, do you really think the employees are going to stick around? I've never run a restaurant before. I know I'm going to be relying on their experience quite a bit. To which the seller responded, I run a restaurant. I guarantee within 12 months, all of them will quit. <laughs> and he said, and that's why... I have a process that I've developed of how to run carefully worded advertisements online. And I have a process of how I manage the responses to sort out who are responsible people versus non-responsible people so that I only interview people that I think are going to be good candidates. And I've got all these different job descriptions and packages put together to allow me to get them up to speed quickly. And so he addressed the buyer's concern by demonstrating that It didn't matter if these people stayed or not. He was going to teach this buyer how to run his system for finding, engaging, and and you know getting new employees up to speed. Yeah, it's it's just amusing. The entire like, let me tell you what you don't know about this business. (laughs) You're worried about that happening. Congratulations, you're going to have that happen every month. Yeah, so it's just funny. So the the post close, we covered that. So you know, in closing, before we wrap up, as a buyer, okay, what is in your opinion, like if you were to give me like your top three or top five things that they have to be aware of, like what is the top of the list as a buyer that buyer needs buyers need to be aware of when looking at buying a business? Yeah, I need, you need to be aware that the information will never be complete and that you have to be comfortable knowing that you're not going to get everything that you want. You also have to be comfortable with the fact that the information may be erroneous and it's not because anyone's trying to fool you. So I was helping a CPA the other day, he's looking at buying a pet company over a pet supply business over in Hawaii. And he remarked to me that he thought it was incredible on the company's balance sheet that they had accounts payable equal to four months of purchases. And he said, I wonder how they get 120 days terms. And I said, listen, they do not get 120 days terms. What they have is they've got a credit card that they're using for all their purchasing. And that's the balance on the credit card. <laughs> and oh. and the reason and the reason I know this is because I've just I've seen this over yeah. and over and over again, right? And and to that small business owner, their the entire day is about pets and pet nutrition and what pets like to do and how people like to engage with their pets. And their day is not about bookkeeping. And so these people will employ different shortcuts and different things that they do. And so the information is not going to be correct in your textbook business school fashion. And so this is why you have to go back to kind of the fundamentals and you have to use third-party data. So when you go to do the due diligence on that business, what you do is you you check the bank statements to make sure the deposits are all correct. And then you go through the box of invoices from all the suppliers and you add them all up and you compare to your income statement. And if it looks kind of close, 
then you can be reasonably certain that the financial statements are likely close, but they're never exactly correct. I would say I certainly open that case. In those cases, they're not letting it sit on the credit card for 120 days. That is a lunacy, but that's not... Well, you say that, but well, it's the alternative, right? Yeah. The, the the way that um, the way that a lot of these businesses are run is not necessarily by people sitting around looking at their financial statements trying to maximize return on equity yeah. or anything like that. They'll make some purchases. Maybe they'll be offered some discounts if they take larger volumes of of uh, materials different promotions that the suppliers have on, they'll put that onto that credit card and then they'll have some other kind of cash demand in their business or personally, and they'll take money out and they'll carry a balance for a while. And then, you know, after the you know big Christmas rush, when they have increased sales, they'll pay it off. So it's, and that's the kind of thing that, that you see in these small businesses. They really sometimes are managed as an extension of the personality of the individual who's running it from day to day. Yeah. There's better ways when it comes to double digit interest anyway. Well, well and 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 so that's a great point. So yeah. here's here's another well, thing that that thing can improve on the profitability, right? If you're going to buy them out. Yeah. So in my experience, the people who often are the sellers of these businesses are people who start them and in that Michael Gerber e-myth kind of sense, they very much are the technicians usually. And so their their interest is in whatever it is that the business is doing. They kind of learn business along the way, try to run their business. Most of the buyers, though, tend to be people that are coming from some kind of background, usually in a larger organization where they've learned some kind of management skills. And those people are going to be able to take that business once they learn how to run the day-to-day, then they're going to be able to step back and really create some operational systems, efficiency, some better processes. They're going to address the accounts payable problem that you just mentioned. They're going to stop paying double-digit interest. They're, they're going to be able to make it into a better business typically is what I, is what I usually see because they bring a different kind of skill set than the the founder of the business had. Absolutely. And that's just, uh, I mean, I have several buyers like that are going around buying companies and different areas that professionalizing everything and, and streamlining and centralizing AP and AR and all kinds of stuff and you know, getting better deals. So yeah, there's a good strategic buyer. They can really leverage it. So David, thank you very much. We covered a lot of the dynamics of the buy side, which we hadn't covered before. So I'm thankful for that. Thank you for your time. And where can people find you? Yeah, sure. The easiest way is to head to my blog site, which is davidcbarnett.com. And from there, you'll find links to all the different things I have going on. I've got a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on this. And and if anyone is interested in the topic of buying and selling small, medium-sized businesses, the best thing is to sign up for my email list. It's free. And I send out stuff all the time, as well as uh, you know, whenever a new video is released on YouTube, you get that in your inbox as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. So that was today's episode on buying a business with David Barnett. Hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.